2: Hello, historians. My name is Eric Gruby, a visiting assistant professor in the Department of History at Boston College and one of the hosts for New Books in German Studies. This podcast channel is part of the New Books Network, and today I'll be hosting Dr. Nicole Eaton. Nicole Eaton is associate professor of history at Boston College, where she teaches courses on the Soviet Union, Imperial Russia, modern Europe, authoritarianism, and mass violence. Her research interests include nationalism, communism, fascism, ethnic cleansing, borderlands, urban history, the Second World War, environmental history, medical humanities, toxicity, and chronic illness in East-Central Europe and Eurasia. Today, we'll be discussing her first book, entitled German Blood, Slavic Soil, How Nazi Königsberg Became Soviet Kaliningrad. It's out now via Cornell University Press as a part of their series, Battlegrounds, Cornell Studies in Military History. Nicole, thanks for being with us today.
1: Oh, Thank you so much for having me, Eric. It's a pleasure.
2: So to start us off, I just want to ask, how did you come to this topic?
1: Well, this uh Was a dissertation for me. So I came to this topic in graduate school. And I was originally interested when I went to graduate school in studying Habsburg history. I was really interested in uh, Austria Hungary and polyglot nationalities and all the messiness of um, East Central Europe um, from the perspective of the Habsburg Empire. And um, when I got to grad school, I was told that the Habsburg uh, Empire was out and that no one in their right mind would study Austria, uh, which I only mentioned today because it's, it's. such a booming topic with uh, new books coming out about the interwar period and the breakup of of empires. Um, But uh, I was still very much interested in those topics. And um, as I started learning um, a second foreign language, my first was German, as I started learning Russian, I became very interested in trying to find a topic that combined these languages, combined my interest in this region um more broadly and also my growing interest in history and sociology of, of everyday life. Um, and uh uh, Konigsberg-Kaliningrad, uh, when it occurred to me, really appealed to me as this one place that had been both German and Soviet and a place where these two uh, mutually antagonistic regimes had met on a single um, on single soil and battling for the future of humanity. And, and the thought that I could write about this one place and this long series of many encounters uh, and bring in some of the my interest in nationalities um, and and ethnic and ethnic groups and polyglot uh, issues. Uh, also my interest in everyday life. It just seemed like a great fit.
2: fantastic. I love hearing the um, the ways in which you're still able to kind of focus on your original interests, uh, especially as an Austrian I think it's great to be're able to kind of still still focus on that in um, in a different different context. so, Um, So overall, your work traces the story of this particular city and province in eastern central Europe during the first half of the 20th century. Uh, More specifically, you examine the violent transformation of German Königsberg, a city in East Prussia, into Soviet Kaliningrad, which became a newly federated oblast within the Russian Soviet Socialist Republic. You focus on how during the Nazi and then Soviet regimes, this space functioned as a distinct borderland exclave and yet remained emblematic of how each regime functioned on the ground, even becoming a new center in its own right during the Nazi Third Reich. So could you describe for us the overall argument of the book, right? What's, what's the main interpretive intervention here regarding the Nazi and Soviet revolutions?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. That's the million dollar question or ruble or Reichsmark. Um, so Königsberg uh, and Kaliningrad on the one hand are very, it's a very particular place. And so it's uh, it's, if one is going to do history right, then it's important to take those particularities into account. And that's something I really do in the narrative. But as you mentioned, it's nonetheless emblematic of several things. And so this the argument of the whole book, if, if one could boil it down to one, um, is about um, how national revolutions, uh, and I do consider the uh, Nazi period to be a revolution in its own right, and the Soviet Revolution, these two ideological projects, these two, total, two totalizing regimes, if we look at them and the way they interact in uh, with one place and with each other, it's possible to see the processes by which um, these national ideologies are adapted for local context. And so I, I certainly wouldn't be the first person to say that these uh, ideologies weren't homogenous and that they had variation and that they interact with conditions on the ground. But for me, it was very important to use uh, Kunigsberg and Kaliningrad and the encounter between these regimes and their beneficiaries and victims um, to show the processes by which this happens and how local conditions do that. Um, also, this uh, a- another central argument to the book is about uh, the important role of place in making all of that happen. Of uh, this was the furthest uh, east uh, major city and territory of the Third Reich. Um, before the war, and uh, it was after the war, the westernmost uh, territory and city of the Soviet Union. And so a sense of being a periphery of a borderland in each um, empire was very important for the ways in which local inhabitants shaped their identity. And so I look at those processes and see the parallels uh, there. And then also, um, I'll talk more about this probably over the course of the talk, uh, our talk today, but I was especially emphasize, uh, interested in emphasizing the role of encounter as an entangled history rather than showing a, a static um, comparative history. Sort of looking at the Nazi regime in, in Nazi Königsberg all on its own and then looking at Soviet Kaliningrad all on its own to showing the processes by which these two... Um, regimes, their inhabitants in this place were constantly thinking about each other, interacting with each other, fearing the other. And this was happening in the world of ideas. And then also just on, on in on the ground encounters on radically different terms depending on the time period.
2: Well fantastic. It's 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 really, you know, impressive to see this sort of overturning of this notion of these totalizing regimes, totalitarian regimes, as it's so often kind of told, being this top-down story. And instead, we get this very much um, kind of bottom-up, but also kind of middle-out story of these kind of mid-tier um, kind of administrative megalomaniacs right on the on the ground. So it's really, really great to get that sort of more kind of textured uh, story. And the fact that it's that two-way street of encounter, I think, is really, really helpful for us. Um, so to that end, I want to kind of dive into some of the more narrative questions Um to kind of kind of tease out the main the main threads here that run throughout the book, um, I just want to say I absolutely the first chapter I was absolutely just completely hooked. Uh, it was just an amazing treat to read that chapter. Um, you start with this incredible walking tour through Königsberg's cityscape and across Königsberg's earlier history. Uh, your tour makes it clear that the denizens perceive their city as sp- rather Janus face, right, imagining it as both a bridge and as a bulwark in terms of its history and its geography, right, that sense of place, as you just mentioned. Um, Could you guide us through your kind of opening walking tour that kind of orients us uh, to this this quote-unquote German city, right?
1: Sure. Um, I do open the book with a a walking tour of of Königsberg, and um, I won't take a street by street through the city. I think that's probably better read than than narrated um, aloud. What I wanted to do, though, was uh, set the scene of a a city in the interwar period of this particular city and embed Königsberg's history into... Um, The context of the collapse of two multi-ethnic empires, both of which were crucial for Königsberg's identity, one was the German Empire, um, and the other was the Russian Empire, and East Prussia, this province uh, of which Königsberg was the capital, um, had, up until the First World War, the end of the First World War, bordered the Russian empire and it was a site for exchange for trade uh Königsberg had been a port city of the hanseatic league um had been there on the baltic sea for over 700 years its whole identity had grown up um over time to be a site for exchange for trade. Um, And that could also be on the level of intellectual encounters through the university, on the level of very Plebeian exchange of of lentils, of flax and hemp, of of agricultural products, of lumber, Um, also of bringing uh, wine and almonds from the Mediterranean. And so this really was a port city. And yet, um, as I show in this first chapter, a sort of narrative thread that continues throughout the book, is that the city had originally been founded as a a Teutonic uh, fort for raiding. You know, Königsberg was um, named after the König, the king in question was King Ottokar of Bohemia. Uh, And and the region was supposed to be sort of a site for plunder and raiding of the Baltic and Slavic tribes to the east. Um, And... And there are these constant tensions in the interwar period um, as this region, East Prussia, was cut off from the rest of Germany by the Polish corridor. Um, This is a sort of product of the uh, post-war Versailles order in the sort of spirit of national self-determination to create an independent Polish state, to give it um, access to the Baltic Sea in order to uh, enable Poland's um, economic viability. Uh, There was this fatal decision in hindsight to uh, cut East Prussia off from the rest of Germany in order to create that corridor, that strip of access to the sea. And so East Prussia remained in Germany, Königsberg remained in Germany, but suddenly had no trading partners to the east because the Russian Empire collapsed, um, was surrounded by hostile neighbors of Lithuania and Poland who uh, suspected Germany and also wanted to claim East Prussia for their own, seeing this territory as vulnerable. And also, uh, no longer had trade to the West because it, it, as an exclave now, as this, uh, outlier of the, of the German Reich of the Weimar Republic, it, it just had its port city it ceased to be meaningful in any way. And so, um, I really wanted to situate that into this sort of collapse of empires as all of these economic um, networks um, really became disrupted and and show how that, um, through walking through the city, not just to sort of, um, the purpose is not just to um, orient the reader to buildings and their locations and favorite restaurants, but to show how the city was presenting itself in guidebooks as a future trading port, as a bastion of the East, as a supremely German city, but that was hiding a sense that this place was vulnerable, uh, that perhaps it was a little less German in some ways than elsewhere. And so that the city, uh, the city's guidebooks and its interpreters in the interwar period were trying to emphasize this very vulnerable borderland region's connection uh, to the history, to the, to the identity, to the I- economy, to the future of, of Germany. And so um, what I do also in this first chapter is um, show amid this, these sort of projections of the city being a bridge, a bridge to the east, a bridge to the west, also a bulwark, this um, place that needs to be protected, um, sort of re- reinstating that Teutonic narrative uh, that, that protects Germany, but it itself must be protected. Um, show how the Nazi party was able to mobilize those fears mobilized that idea, this kind of siege mentality that this place was vulnerable, um, that this place could be under attack. Uh, it was um, uh, the, uh, the fact that um, the Nazis were a relative late to East Prussia uh, and were very unsuccessful there at first. They were already conservative and nationalist parties, agrarian conservative parties, um, had a stronger foothold in rural East Prussia. The social socialists, social democrats had actually a very strong foothold in the city and the communists. This exclave and isolation and the creation of the Polish corridor made nationalist parties ever more prominent. But it was only after 1928, relatively late, that a new Gauleiter or party leader, um, Erich Koch, was appointed to East Prussia figured out how to capitalize on this, these very local fears and very local concerns about the region's economic inviability, about um, being surrounded on all sides, and made a party platform out of it, out of these siege mentalities, and did so very masterfully in a way that really appealed to East Prussian voters. and. Uh, became so successful that very soon um, the Nazis had their absolute best showing in East Prussia from having their absolute worst showing just a couple of years before. Um, and part of the dynamic that runs throughout the book is to show how very local conditions uh, met adaptation. This is one of the adaptations, adapt, uh, adapting the message, as was happening across Germany at the time, one of Hitler's strategy changes. But in the East Prussia's case, this message was so successful that it ended up becoming, uh, going from the periphery back to the center, becoming part of the national platform of Hitler um, by 1933, about the injustices of Versailles and making East Prussia a centerpiece of that. Um, and so this is part of the, the mission of the um, first chapter is to show how these myths, how these myths of place um, really did grow out of the interwar period and how they were capitalized on by the Nazis.
2: Yeah, and it's really, it's really, you know, fascinating to hear just the kind of the borderland dialectic between vulnerability and strength, right? The kind of those interconnectedness of those two, um, I guess, sort of senses of self, right, uh, coming to the fore here. And also the, the extent to which you, you know, totally reversing the, the core periphery dynamic, which, which sort of gets us into the, uh, of the Nazi rise of power right, in, in, in Königsberg coming back to kind of shape the larger Nazi message, right? Which um, takes us into the, the, second, the second chapter, right? Uh, which is to say, we, we, you trace out um, the, the, the rise to the zenith of the Nazi continental empire during the Second World War. And so this question is sort of um, uh, twofolded as well, right? Uh, what set Königsberg and East Prussia apart, both kind of literally and figuratively, figuratively during the Nazi era, Um, But also, how did it become central, very much central to the Nazi empire, particularly when it came to their um, policies and kind of spatial imaginaries for the, quote unquote, the East? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So this uh, East Prussia's exclave status, its isolation from the rest of the Reich, made all sorts of things possible. Um, First, it meant that... um, that relative isolation allowed for a sense of autonomy among Königsberg's Nazis and that prompted them Um, to become theorists in their own right. And there was an especially active local um, intellectual crowd of um, national socialist uh, sympathizers and party members known as the Konigsberg circle. And among them um, historians, economists, journalists, uh, um, philosophers, even uh, Prussian uh, civil, uh, civil servants. And they, uh, Imagine that East Prussia's relative underdevelopment as a region that had been passed over for industrialization, that had few natural resources like the Ruhr Valley or Silesia, uh, and that was undergoing this crisis of agriculture, even more so with uh, disrupted trade networks, they thought that this would make East Prussia this uh, school of the revolution. And that was a quote from one of the... um, books by um eric cox uh, primary economist and theorist um man named grunberg uh they thought that this school of the revolution they would create their own national socialism which was very much influenced by the left wing of the party this so-called prussian socialism um Uh, that was influenced by the Strasser brothers. Uh, Koch was an affiliate with them. And they continued on even after that left wing was purged, mostly from the party. They managed to keep it surviving in Königsberg. And they thought that they were going to implement this version of a sort of collectivist settler agrarian paradise, you know, with a sort of, that would, balance modern industrial um, capacity with these big sprawling farms where German workers would be leaving their sort of uh, Großstadt, big city miserable existence and come out to be working in these farms and, and sort of make East Prussia this new um, bold and economic, um, economically viable place. And that that regeneration would then be exported to the rest of the Reich. Now, this didn't actually come to place, the 12-year Reich, as we know. uh, (laughs) I'm sorry, the 1,000-year Reich lasted about 12 years, most of it um, in the conditions of of war. And so they didn't actually get to carry out all of these uh, fantasies of regeneration. What they did do um, was uh, manage to bring about full employment and became very famous for doing that. Uh, And Erich Koch... um, became because of the region's peculiar um, separation not only the most party uh, powerful party boss in all of um, the German Gao a uh, Gaua in all of the regions he was the most powerful but he also became um, the um, he, he also became uh, the most powerful civil servant um, as a Reich's president of the Prussian lands and he was one of the uh, it was the only place where this had happened where uh, he was the leader of the state and of the party of that entire region. It gave him really unprecedented power. And he managed to style himself as this um, little Hitler, you know, sort of a, a little furor, uh, so much so that um, uh, the people surrounding Hitler in Berlin, Himmler, Goering, tried to oust him, but were unsuccessful because Hitler appreciated Koch's loyalty. Um the other way that I wanted to mention about this region's particularity was uh, the uh, ethnic mixture of East Prussia. While Königsberg itself was German by all accounts, by um, uh, mostly Lutherans, German-speaking, many of them German last names, the further one went from Königsberg either to the toward the borders of Lithuania or toward the borders of Poland, especially in the southern two-thirds of the province, much of the population spoke either um, within a generation or two, had spoken Lithuanian at home, uh, I had, although had mostly assimilated. By that time had very Lithuanian-sounding last names, barely adapted to German, and in the southern two-thirds of the province spoke the Missourian dialect of Polish. Um, during um, the interwar period, there had been a forced plebiscite by the victors uh, out and that region, um, uh, people were asked whether they wanted to remain part of Germany or to join Poland. Um, even though they mostly spoke Polish at home in some places, over 50% of the population speaking Polish, they voted 90% or more uh, to remain in Germany. And this... Um, was very important not only in the interwar period, but also to the Nazis to try to overturn the common ideals of what national self-determination meant, saying, pointing out that language was not the same as ethnicity, uh, because much of this population had been in the Prussian state, had been loyal to the Prussian state, and were in many cases, Lutherans rather than Catholics, and they associated Polishness with being Catholic and Lutheranness with being part of the German state and, and part of German civilization, even if they didn't consider themselves necessarily early on to be Luther, uh, to be Germans. During the Nazi period, um, part of uh, what East Prussia's Nazis did differently was to redefine the terms for German-ness because it was the case that they very much wanted this population, which had been loyal, which wanted to remain in Germany, wanted to redefine them as Germans. Uh, and did so by pointing out that it could be a matter of willpower, it could be a matter of just cultural affinity. It didn't have to necessarily be blood. Uh, and so this is one of the I- ironies of the title German blood, is that they argued it didn't have to be blood. Of course, there were all kinds of internal um, contradictions. The further you scratch the surface of, of Nazi race science, the more ridiculous it becomes. Because of course, when it came to Jewish blood, uh, one drop was <laughs> major Jewish. But when it, came, when it came to the case of uh, Lithuanians and Poles, they could do all kinds of ways of of redetermining uh, the meaning of belonging. Um, Over time, um, race and settlement office, Nazis became more uh, more interested in sort of putting a blood-based, race-based definition uh, uh, on this population, but still managed to figure out how to make them German. Um, The final way, moving on to um, the war that this place became very particular is because of its geography, because of its Eastern location, and because of Koch's great power as a party boss and his reputation, uh, uh, East Prussia was primed to become a sort of informal civilian empire during the war. Konigsberg's Nazis first uh, gained territories in 1939 that were um, grafted onto East Prussia. So East Prussia itself expanded during the war, um, taking parts of Poland, uh, uh after 1941 and the invasion of the Soviet Union, uh, the Bialystok region, uh, today in, in Belarusia, a little bit of Poland, also was fused to East Prussia as a sort of East Prussian uh, personal colony that was separate from um, Ostland or separate from Reichskommissariat Ukraine. And Eric Koch became uh, the Reichskommissar of all of Nazi-occupied Ukraine, the, the main civilian administrator. Um, there really should be more work done on this because much of the civilian administration were just uh, Koch's cronies from Königsberg. And so for example, the very first Nazi in Königsberg, a baker named Walter Magunya, himself not very interesting because he wasn't an intellectual or theorist um, and wasn't very part- important other than having been the first Nazi, was appointed the mayor of Kiev during the war. And so there are all of these links where the civilian administration is coming from Königsberg or associated with East Prussia in some way. Um, and uh, so that is a small part of my story, but a, a very interesting uh, phenomenon.
2: Yeah, I, I truly, the, the kind of colliding of the kind of Nazi obsession with you know, the strength of the will Versus the kind of the stereotypes of biological racism that we kind of take for granted, um, to me was one of the most just utterly fascinating things to see the ways in which this was not, it, it was truly being kind of hashed out, I struggle to say the word intellectually, but kind of mentally among these Nazi theorists about how we kind of try, how they would try to pin down criteria for inclusion and exclusion and how that was inherently, as you say, you know, totally Laced with so many problems and 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 um, errors and all kinds of you know fallacies, but it was just fascinating to see that kind of that that tension that the will could kind of in their mind kind of trump blood in some ways. To me, was just so powerful to read because it just kind of bucked everything I would have, would have assumed right um, about this this process. Um, so when the war. Obviously, starts to go badly for the Germans, right? How did um, the Nazi retreat, right? The kind of um, the rather, I'll let you get into the details, but the 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 details of the Nazi policies for retreat. How did that intersect with and exacerbate? the kind of already ongoing processes of the Holocaust and genocidal violence.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's something very interesting that you mentioned. Uh, I wanted to mention that um, early on in the war, another um, interesting feature of East Prussia's extension of this rule from the Baltic all the way to the Baltic Black Sea, this continuous stretch of East Prussian, in some ways affiliated, dominated, uh, ruled territory, is that there were so many precedents for the Holocaust that were set there. Um, Some of the early uh, euthanasia campaigns took uh, T4 experiments, took place, um, uh, uh, Operation T4 rather, took place in the Polish territories uh, that were annexed to East Prussia. Um, some of the rehearsals for the Holocaust in 1939, the first uh, ghettoizations um, and even theories of how to ghetto, ghettoize uh, were created by uh, East Prussian theorists. Um, and uh, some of the first um, massacres, uh, more or less spontaneous and then planned, uh, were happening in 1939-40 in these East Prussian annexed territories. Um Likewise, uh, it was in Ukraine and the the so-called, as Vasily Grossman, the great Soviet writer, called it the Holocaust by bullets, the first um, mass killing actions of the Holocaust in Bialystok and um, elsewhere in Ukraine, uh, were these East Prussian um, uh, leaders, including Koch, were intimately involved in them and, of course, weren't operating on their own, um, but as part of a larger network of, of civilian, military and SS um, organizations, um, but it really is these policies of um, ghettoization, of labor extraction, these tensions between economic utility and the ideal, ideological desire to eliminate the Jews. All of that um, becomes part of the East Prussian civilian administration abroad in this war. Um, part of their understanding of how to how to run the war, and there are very there are particularities that I get into in the text, but as Um, this empire in the East collapses as the Soviet Union is um, advancing and the Red Army approaching the borders of East Prussia, East Prussia became the first German territory uh, that the Soviet Union invaded and therefore very large part of the Soviet imaginary at a large and a great place where the Soviet Union carried out their violence. What I wanted to show, however, was um, how so much of what uh, the Nazis had learned and done uh, the violence they had inflicted on uh, on the occupied territories as part of the Holocaust, as part of um, the starving of Ukrainian, Russian, Belarusian um, civilians, etc how those tools they then brought back to their own populations and to foreign populations and forced labor and slave populations um, inside East Prussia and how that all all of those dynamics of the war came home. Uh, I was interested in telling uh, this story of the downfall of Konigsberg, um in late 1944 uh, into 1945 um, from a German perspective, because so much of the historiography, or I should say the popular memory and his and historiography of this time, um, it, is tells this as a very German story. This was part of the controversy, uh, of the, the historian's controversy, the so-called historical strike of the 1980s. Um, uh, uh, questions about how to tell the downfall of Germany. Could you tell it as a mode of tragedy, as a loss, um, as a, a heroic struggle of the Wehrmacht soldiers to hold off the Red Army, or, or need it be told, you know, as the sort of rightful destruction of, a, of an evil empire? Um, And I was really struck by one of these um, famous books that was controversial at the time, Andreas Hillgruber's um, Two Kinds of Destruction, at least that's the title in English, um, was uh, one of these controversial books because it pit this very emotional story of the downfall of um, Germany in 1945, much of it the battle for East Prussia, um, with this very sociological... um, uh, cold, rational, kind of neutral uh, account of the destruction of the European Jewry. And so those were the two kinds of destruction, but they had completely different emotional valences, the way the stories were told, as if the destruction of the European Jewry had never also been a ger- German story, uh, and therefore someone else's story. Um, um, Hillgruber himself was from just outside Königsberg, and he had been fighting and fleeing the Red Army as a soldier during the war. And so I don't use his story in particular, but it was an inspiration for me to tell these two kinds of destruction in a different way, in an entangled way. And so um, I really emphasize how uh, in many German memoir stories about the loss of homeland, about the loss of East Prussia, about um, the violent encounters with Soviet soldiers, uh, how this, how Germans understood this to be a tragedy, how they understood it to be undeserved, how they, um, especially during the Cold War, a lot of these memoirs, um, oral history projects, etc., considered this to be a sort of barbarism washing over a peaceful land and undeserved punishment. I wanted to take those stories seriously and not just debunk them. Um, and I wanted to take seriously the challenges of assigning collective guilt to individuals, right? People who say, well, we didn't, we didn't have part in this. We didn't do this. You know, we are not responsible for this because of the way their ordinary lives seem disconnected from what was happening on the Eastern front. So what I was very really interested in showing was the ways in which this province had been very integrated into the the war and the politics of the Eastern front had profited from it, had also suffered because of it had a disproportionate number of soldiers called up, etc. Um, And to show how the tragedies that happened there as the Nazi party and as German leaders in Königsberg and East Prussia and also military leaders forcefully integrated everybody into the war effort, how not only Germans suffered from that, uh, and they suffered at German hands, but also Jewish prisoners from the Stutthof concentration camp, over 7,000 of them murdered and marched into the Baltic Sea, and how ordinary German civilians, ordinary, whatever that means, young German teenage boys, Volksturm members called up um, to serve, were um, made complicit and forced to take part in those killing actions. And so showing how all of these tragedies on all sides were combined and how this was not just a German story was very um, uh, important to me to, to, to reintegrate these stories of the Holocaust and of German suffering.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: Illuminating, powerful, and humanizing to to read these stories, but it is really you know heavy and important to to go through them. And um, I kind of want to get to this this notion of as historians, how do we treat violence on this sort of scale and in this sort of horrific manner? Right. So, obviously, given your topic, um, violence and death uh, loom large throughout the book. Right from warfare racial violence, genocidal violence, um, uh, mass sexual violence to starvation, epidemics, and just overall general deprivation. Um, And you powerfully reconstruct these stories for us and recognize the humanity within and behind all this violence. But I was wondering if you could sort of peel back the curtain a bit in terms of, I guess, maybe method or or writing um, about how you approach these forms of violence and how to kind of reconstruct them um, on their own terms, but in ways that aren't sensationalist, I guess, be, be kind of the, the tension I, I would be curious to hear about.
1: Yeah, this is something I was really interested in. Um, I remember um, I went to grad school at Berkeley and I remember there was a professor there, Thomas LaCour, who's since retired, and, um, uh, a famous historian of cultural history has written all kinds of great works, and he says, you know, the only methodology we historians have is the calendar. You know, sort of joking about how, how um, loose history is a field co- compared to the other social sciences in terms of what we use for methodology. And so, I'll say, I certainly use the calendar, um, but in uh, <laughs> in terms of uh, my other approaches, uh, I am very much an historian who works through narrative, and uh, rather than sort of structures of of sort of arguing um, up front about uh, they say and I say and, and, and where my intervention is into the historiography. But that said, is I was very interested, as I mentioned about um, the German side of the story of the downfall of Königsberg. Um, it could be easily juxtaposed with the Soviet story of um, a heroic invasion, uh, a heroic liberation of the world from fascism. I was very struck by how many personal narrative accounts there are diaries, memoirs, later oral histories, official histories um, um, by historians, by emigre groups, uh, by veterans groups on all sides. Uh, and how all of them are telling dramatically different stories with dramatically different moral values about what happened in 1945 in East Prussia. As this was the first German territory invaded, this was one of the most bloody battles of the second world war and one of the greatest mass flights of a civilian population. Um, and so it is this site that created all kinds of stories, all of them contested and um, German Civilians uh, suffered in great numbers. They were mass raped. Uh, Soldiers raped them. Soviet soldiers raped them. Um, Some estimates are that um, there were 0.6 rapes per soldier um, in East Prussia. Or um, many women, uh, aged uh, young girls to very old elderly ladies, were um, raped multiple times, gang raped, Uh, many of them killed in the process, others left. uh, left bleeding to die. Um, many people were also executed. There were there were more um, women at the time than men. The most men were very 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 young or very very old because anyone up through the age of mid sixties had been called up for the Volksturm by that point, unless they were invalids. Um, and so this is very sort of a, a gendered story of uh, male soldiers and and female um, civilians and, and children. Um, what I was interested in doing was showing. Juxtaposing these stories, showing the ways in which the Soviets had understood what they were doing in insofar as we can reconstruct it. Um, what the Germans understood happening to them and what their re- sense of responsibility or not was for it, um, how they explained these stories. And I wanted this to be a really multi narrative. What I did differently from other historians in the past was emphasize, um, and this almost this has almost never appeared in the English language historiography of the end of the Second World War, and, uh, emphasize not just only the violence and the horror of uh, the Soviet mass rape of German civilians, um, which has been featured in the historiography, a famous poem by Alexander Solzhenitsyn about, um, about um, mass rape and all, all kinds of other uh, accounts. I wanted to get a sense of not only what the Germans thought about what was happening, but what the Soviets thought. And so there are a number of um, memoirs from the 1980s and 1990s of, of, while it had been very taboo to admit that rape had happened, uh, uh, it it was part of the sort of anti-fascist line of the post-war period, that these were noble, heroic Red Army soldiers bringing socialist humanism, right? And and any excesses were... Um, very minor and and very infrequent. And so there are a whole slew of memoirs um, in Russian that talk about the violence. Often these were later dissidents and intellectuals. It wasn't most people who then brought this up, but there were were many. Uh, And so I reconstruct some of those narratives and how some soldiers lost faith in the Soviet project because of what they witnessed in East Prussia, and others rationalized it. And so to tell this story, of this really fateful encounter in 1944-45 from these different perspectives, and to not say that one was wrong and the other was right on the one hand, but not to not to rationalize and apologize for rape uh, or murder or execution, but to contextualize it, the world from which the Soviets had come, uh, 26 billion people died, everyone in the Soviet Union lost um, someone to the war, often a comrade fighting side by side, a family member, Uh, a lover or a friend, um, everyone's lives had been disrupted for years. Uh, and then, uh, they had just liberated the concentration camps just before entering East Prussia. And all of that context is also important for explaining, for understanding, if not for forgiving what happened.
2: Well, thank you. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the book does a marvelous job in kind of walking all of those, those different lines, right. And, and, and keeping that, that balance in mind. so sort of moving into the more Soviet kind of part of the narrative in terms of occupation, but not necessarily in terms of experience, right? Um, you describe, right, the Soviet invasion, as, as you've already mentioned, as this kind of um, another Janus face, right, between liberation and revenge, right? And so I was wondering if you could sort of walk us through how the Soviets initially administered the city and its environs, right? How did the Soviet occupation uh, in East Prussia differ structurally from the other territories in the USSR, um, that the USSR had recently either reinvaded or reincorporated into its kind of expanding self, um, and what were the consequences of this sort of very structural decision for the inhabitants of Königsberg?
1: Yeah, so I should say that the uh, uh, the German period of the story up to 1944 um, is a, a longer time period and goes through three chapters. Uh, chapter four is the Soviet um, presentation of, of the invasion of East Prussia. And then the last three chapters cover a period of two years, two or three years, I should say. So the time, each chapter, the time, the the amount of time becomes shorter and shorter by the, and by the time of, um, chapter seven, the final chapter in the book, it's, it's really about half a year. Uh, and so this is a kind of telescoping and zooming in of the story. And so the Soviet half of this, half of this book is about a three-year period whereas the German story was uh, the almost the first half of the century and so that it changes the the scope and and um, the level of detail so th- with that said uh, it it was interesting to me as I said um, earlier that it wasn't really entirely possible to write a A comparative history of these two cities even though it was one city and should make it very very easy in some senses to write a comparative history. In other ways the context was dramatically different 1933 versus 1945. Um, It was uh, the case that um, Königsberg was Very much destroyed in the war, 60% of the city uh, as a whole, 90% of the city center. And this was in uh, British uh, bombing raids, in a protected siege of the city in the spring of 1945 by the Red Army, Um, all kinds of violence after the city fell that destroyed the city even further. And and this was a place where um, water networks were disrupted, electricity, gas supplies, all of the the urban infrastructure designed to sustain life on the one hand, and also the the agricultural infrastructure had been completely disrupted, destroyed because of the timing of the invasion. And so there were no crops growing um, because the farmers had fled because the planting happened very late and under extreme duress. So there are all kinds of scenarios that I set up um, that just um, depict this place as a, a as a region on the pre- precipice of death uh, because there are many, many people still living there. Um, upwards of 200,000 Germans remain by my calculations. That's a little higher than other people have, have figured, but I sort of working with the archival figures is what I came up with at least in April 1945. Those numbers go down dramatically thereafter. Um, and, and all of these people needed to be sustained. And so th- The Red Army had come in as conquerors and as sort of liberators of humanity, imagining they were going to punish the Germans, but they had to become the state. They had to resurrect life, they had to resurrect city, and they had to keep these people from dying. Some historians have, um, or later commentators, thought that they just wanted to leave the Germans to die, sort of work them to death and and leave them to their fates. Um, That's not not, um, exactly the motivation I saw in the archives. I saw uh, a desperate scramble to resurrect this place with very little funding to do so. Kaliningrad, this northern, the Kaliningrad region, what it became the Kaliningrad region was the northern third of East Prussia. Two, the southern two-thirds did go to Poland when it was reconstituted, this place where there were Mazurian polish speakers, um, a little sliver of territory went also to the USSR, um, but directly to Lithuania. The region that I follow is uh, the Kaliningrad region. Um, Those other parts of the story, because they're they're not where Konigsberg are are sort of drop off um, my radar um, just for the sake of the narrative. Uh, But this Kaliningrad region was only about one percent of the territory coming into the Soviet sphere of influence at the end of the Second World War, either being directly annexed into the Soviet Union as this region was, or being part of the Soviet sphere of influence as the, the um, People's Republic's Eastern Bloc. And so this this is a tiny, tiny region. It's at the center of, of my story and the center of life for the people living there. But it, uh, even though Stalin had maneuvered during the war to claim it, uh, maneuvered during these um, wartime conferences with the Western allies, um, claiming the need for an ice-free port, ostensibly though wanting a buffer for the re Baltic Republics, uh, wanting this sort of buffer region to protect the Soviet Union um, from the West. Uh, he made absolutely no plans for this place. Uh, there, it, the archival record is vague on this, but it seems that um, in Moscow, people didn't realize exactly how many Germans were still there and didn't particularly care. Uh, And so this region was set up as a military district, a special military district. The provisional military administration that operated were just the same soldiers who had uh, of the 11th Guards Army, uh, part of the 3rd Belarusian Front, who had had, uh, captured the territory. So they were the same people who had engaged in this mass rape and pillage and looting, were then called upon to switch their Um, approach to the population to get them to work, to to incorporate them in some way. Because there were no real plans for this territory, other than it would be in the Soviet Union, there were also... um, no plans for it at the Potsdam um, post-war conferences where the, the expulsions of the German populations were set, the resettlement of Germans in East Central Europe. And so while Germans elsewhere were being expelled um, in Kaliningrad, they weren't, there, there was no discussion of this. There were absolutely no discussion of getting rid of the Germans. Uh, and uh, the Germans, once the borders were closed, were not allowed to leave. They were forced to stay. Some historians have depicted that as a kind of big penal colony, as a big forced labor sort of gulag, all of of Kaliningrad. Um, I think it became that way not by design, if it did, um, but because this region was underfunded, isolated, in a sort of eerie parallel to interwar um, East Prussia, but much more dire circumstances, left to its own devices in trying to fix an unsustainable economic situation. Um, And so this is the problem they were left with, a a German population on the edge of death, a city on the edge of death, no funding uh, to resurrect it, but then the urgent need to do so and an urgent need to figure out what to do with these Germans with no instructions from Moscow or the military command in Berlin.
2: Yeah, it was really, I mean, in many ways, illuminating and just kind of jaw dropping to read the kind of utter kind of hanging question mark left over this this entire uh, city and its environs uh, from the kind of Soviet perspective and the, the Soviet kind of military administration on the ground sort of trying to scramble um, their way and, and fumble their way through this, this kind of uh, return to some sort of functionality to a place that they had just utterly... Destroyed, right? Um, and I wanted to kind of turn to that that notion of kind of, I guess, reconstruction. This this the role of labor in Soviet society, right? And the Soviet Revolution more broadly, and and that kind of um, almost kind of mystical aura around labor, both both as a theoretical revolutionary process and as a physical action in the material world. Um, could you discuss in in Königsberg what work like work itself, right? Was labor supposed to do regarding the formation of a kind of anti-fascist population, right? How is this? And, and get into kind of the the double-edged sword of that, that, that mechanism that comes to, 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 to be between redemptive labor and anti-fascism.
1: Yeah. wow well, no, that's a great setup. Um, So I should say sort of more basically the last three chapters of the book, uh, five, six, and seven, the ones that are set in the post-war period 1945 to 1948 are really preoccupied with this problem of the German population and their relationship to Soviet society. And I don't only follow the Germans. They're not the only part of the story and the only protagonist I care about. The reason that I focus on them is because their existence there, as new Soviet settlers are moving in, as Soviet administrators are there, it really exposes what's happening in Soviet ideology, how the Soviet Union understands itself, how its people understand themselves in the Soviet project, and it is it is the sort of. Um, apex of this encounter that had been building over the course of decades. And now there is this longest ever and largest ever cohabitation between Germans and Soviets on reverse terms. Masters had become slaves and slaves had become masters. That's perhaps a slight overstatement, but that's really organizes that those last three chapters of the book, this problem, the German problem in, in Kaliningrad. And as I mentioned, there was no plan to expel these, um, these people, these German civilians, uh, they were filtered, they were interrogated, but they weren't um, they weren't convicted of anything. Those who were had already been sent off to POW camps or the Gulag. Elsewhere, and I'm coming to the question of labor, this is a sort of a setup for that. Elsewhere in the Soviet zone of occupation, the future East Germany, um, in these new anti-fascist uh, governments that were being set up, Anywhere that the Red Army had boots on the ground and had um, shaped their uh, were shaping the post-war societies, in those places, emigre communists, anti-fascists, people with anti-fascist credentials who had spent the war in exile, often in Moscow, came back. They had been waiting in the wings, including in going back to Berlin, um, and became the. The, po- the voice of the population. They became the spokespeople. They formed the new government. They were the ones who were allowed, uh, able to um, sort of be proxies for the population in order to show the, that the population was um, redeemable or redeemed, rather, was not complicit with fascism. And so this worked in the future GDR, uh, was a sort of A proxy for actual denazification was having an anti fascist government, right? And so people would sort of be rehabilitated, but they were all collectively now this anti fascist society. This didn't happen in Kaliningrad. Königsberg was renamed Kaliningrad in 1946, but there was this prolonged, improvised military administration. And then it was only in mid 1946 that it became a civilian administration. Never were Germans. Um, formally incorporated into the government. They didn't have any councils. They didn't have their sort of germ. they didn't have any representation. They were just sort of informer, so-called burgomeistery from the German burgermeister. Little, um, not quite mayors, but just sort of conduits from the Soviet administration telling the German population what to do. Um, And that really had profound consequences. And so there were a handful of card-carrying German communists sort of emerging from the wings. They weren't part of this government. And so what happened, to bring back the question to labor, is that there was no way it turns out, to determine the status of the German population individually or collectively. Were they free from fascism? Were they still complicit? Were they still Nazis at heart? What was going on in their hearts and minds? And so one of the main ways in which they tried to, the Soviet government, made efforts to deal with the German population, to rehabilitate them, was through labor. This was, labor played such a, Important central role in Soviet ideology, in a, in the sense of workers in the world of the world unite. The idea that labor itself was healing, that it was redemptive, was a part of the ideology of the, the Gulag, as several historians have shown. Stephen Barnes, being among them, showing that there was this in, implicit template in ideology uh, in Soviet ideology that work would make one better, that honest work would would redeem them, and so these were not like the Königsberg circle theorists during the Third Reich or the early Third Reich. These were not, you know, expert scholars of Marxism, Leninism, or, or sort of philosophers of Marxism, uh, but they were the revolution's children. And they brought these implicit templates of Soviet ideology. And so forced labor in Königsberg, which because of the se- severe privation and conditions on the ground was harsher than elsewhere, because of the lack of funding was harsher than elsewhere, it was still had these elements of rehabilitation built in, you know, incentives for those who over the plan, which rarely came about, but were there. Um, and all kinds of speeches about the value of honest labor in rebuilding the city and redeeming the Germans. The idea here being that they would work and work would set them free. Um, the problem, though, was that there was no real measure of to gauge success, except for whether the city had been reconstructed or not, you know. <laughs> um, so there was no endpoint at which, um, because there were no instructions from Moscow, and it was hard to get any communication. On, no endpoint at which they would just be given citizenship, which would show that they once they were Soviet citizens or declared to be naturalized or given passports, that would mean that they were redeemed. But that never happened.
2: Yes, yeah, sort of this um, the constant sort of shifting of the goalpost or kind of trying to square the circle of kind of lofty ideals or kind of, I should say maybe like half-baked ideals with the utter destruction on the ground and the inability to get the resources necessary to kind of get this project rebuilt. Right. Um, So I was wondering if we could get to, and I I also want to comment the, the, you talked about the kind of the, condensing of the temporal scales of each chapter right i thought it was fantastic because it kind of heightens the sense of of kind of urgency kind of get this very good like page turning effect um, uh, as a reader so i thought that was that was really really powerful um i want to get to the year 1947 right uh when the book reaches its its very sort of narrative climax right The, the human story here has a very Dramatic sort of as we talked about page turning personal moment, which I will um, won't spoil here, so that way our listeners have have a cliffhanger. Um, But in Soviet calculations, what eventually did sort of tip the scale in favor of expulsion rather than rehabilitation of the German speaking populations?
1: Sure. So the narrative I tell is it it, it, a little I can break down a little inelegantly here is 1945 is a city of death in which there are Uh, desperate scrambles to race against uh, time in order to save space. 1946 is the year the Civilian Administration comes and it's a a, a sort of flattening out the nuance would be to depict it as a time uh, when integration seemed possible. Some new Soviet settlers were arriving, there were all kinds of efforts, some of them haphazard, some of them decentralized, most all of them locally initiated by the new civilian government to integrate the Germans into Soviet society. So parallel with the idea of labor being redemptive, even though it is very harsh conditions, there were these efforts to integrate the German population with social welfare, Uh, to standardize the uh, existing hospitals and give them funds um, and have German and Soviet doctors and nurses working together as a team uh, to to improve patient outcomes. There were um, uh, schools set up for German children to teach them in the German language, um, and there were um, funds set up for a really extensive network of orphanages. Unfortunately, That they were needed, but um, German children were put into orphanages where they were very well clothed and fed um, by comparison to other parts of the population. There even talks about making pensions for the elderly. A lot of this was haphazard, as I say, and existed sometimes more on paper than in practice. But to see these constant efforts to try to integrate the Germans, not as a penal colony. And besides his efforts at social welfare, there were also attempts to educate Germans directly about the superiority of socialism, the superiority of the Soviet Union and its mission, and that it was the most progressive in the world and the evils of fascism. And so there were these three-pronged approaches, uh, rehabilitative labor, social welfare, and anti-fascist education. What uh, really tipped the scales in 1947 uh, was a number of um, a number of factors, um, demographic, material, and ideological. Demographic was the uh, Moscow-organized mass settlement campaign, part of a post-war plan to um, move around populations within the Soviet Union and regions that had been destroyed, also part of a plan to, sell, uh, to, to settle Kaliningrad Oblast with um, With um, collective farmers, Um, the region had become part of the Russian Socialist Federative Republic um, rather than a sort of Kaliningrad uh, Soviet Republic of its own, and so most of the population ended up coming from Russia, from Belarusia, from Ukraine. Um, They were sort of around ninety percent Slavic speaking, eighty percent, eighty five percent Russian, and. These people had come in a trickle, maybe by 10,000, 15,000, 60,000. But then by nineteen, early 1947, there were around 200,000 new Soviet settlers. Uh, and the German population, which had been the majority, was suddenly a minority uh, in this province, uh, in this region. Uh, likewise, there were many material factors. Uh, confounding that is that this new population came at the end of the harvest season, uh, at a time which, uh, was became infamous as a winter famine in the Soviet Union. In ni- the winter of 1946 47 was one of the coldest and harshest on record, and um, there were food shortages that continued into the summer of 1947 across the Soviet Union. Many people starved to death. In Kaliningrad, the conditions were likewise bad, but they were made worse by this new settlement. Uh, and what happened was that the death happened very much on uh, et- an ethnic hierarchy. It was almost entirely Germans, not not absolutely entirely, but almost entirely Germans who starved to death, whereas Soviets ex- uh, faced extreme hardship were less likely to die. And that was part of an economy of scarcity. And that when there were not enough resources to go around, it was, of course, the Germans who uh, would be given less and that would be, need to be rationalized why they were be- being given less. They were not Soviet citizens um the final ideological and organizational factor was that it was at just this time December into this of uh, 1946 into the spring of 1947 that the first true uh, standard hierarchy of communist party organs was installed in Kaliningrad there had been communists active all kinds of small uh, communist party cells within individual institutions but it was the first time that the neighborhood district city and then oblast region uh hierarchy of party organs and a new party boss were all put in place. And that direct accountability line ideologically to Moscow uh, meant that uh, there was suddenly a lot more to account for. Why were people starving to death? Why were factories not exporting yet? Why had the city not been rebuilt? Why had all of these plans not been fulfilled? These pressures to fulfill and the expectations which were generally part of the sort of Soviet economic picture of of over-expectation and under-fulfillment and need to find scapegoats came very suddenly to Kaliningrad and it made the Germans a scapegoat. Uh, the Germans' starving bodies, their uh, lo- lying dead on the street became evidence not of a, an indictment of Soviet rule and the inferiority of Soviet socialism as a system, but it became in the projections of the local population there who turned against the Germans, especially the party leaders, and, um, evidence that the Germans were suffering from fascism. This was a a physical manifestation of their uh, ideological failings. Uh, And so this uh, became part of a scapegoating line that became a witch hunt trial in order to deflect blame for failure to rebuild, which was uh, as I noted earlier in the book, really impossible given the lack of funds and, and shortages of supplies and labor, uh, became a campaign to expel the Germans. And this is something that was very interesting to me in the archives because any other historians had assumed it had come from Moscow, had assumed that the, the, it was a, a declaration on high that was really started from above and that it even went against um, economic prerogatives in Kaliningrad. Uh, I agree that it went against economic prerogatives in cleaning grab because there were still labor shortages and Germans found formed the bulk of the labor force in some critical industries, including shipbuilding, pulp and paper mills, other exporting uh, industries that were being rebuilt. But what uh, really became apparent was that this these local tensions and the, the demand for accountability led to a local drive for expulsion that started the wheels turning in Moscow, started those conversations, and then ultimately the decision had to come from Moscow, uh, and which it did by um, late 1947, by October 1947. And by then, Kaliningrad's leaders were surprised. They thought it wasn't ultimately going to happen, that the matter had been dropped. Uh, And it started reintegrating the Germans again after the harvest had gotten better, thinking that they were stuck with them. But that was when the the expulsion announcement was... um, was announced, and it was by late 1948, that the mass of the population had been resettled.
2: Yes, it's really both fascinating and horrifying to watch throughout this this chapter, right, the kind of inability to fix material conditions leading to kind of magical ideological thinking about what must be going on here and why things are failing, and surely it can't be Soviet socialism, it has to be some other kind of illogical uh, like a, a pathology right at play here, um, or at least kind of conceived in that way. Um, and it's really horrifying to see that kind of thinking transform local kind of administrative thinking and then kind of reverberate through to the main kind of higher ups and then back down again. It's really this sort of um, almost like seeing like vibrations on a spider web sort of thing, right? Back and forth. Um, so in getting kind of to the, the concluding portion of our, our talk, um, your work really is a, is a masterstroke of prose, narrative, and analysis. I highly recommend anyone and everyone to go pick up a copy today. You highlight the massive role of contingency throughout this transition from a Nazi to a Soviet city, uh, in that sense, kind of debunking any kind of teleological assumption that, um, um, expulsion was was kind of inevitable, right? Kind of tearing down that, that um, um, myth, right? We also tease out some various litany, actually, of internal tensions at play that nevertheless drove forward these revolutionary changes and movements. Um, your case frames the city and province as a flashpoint of convergence between the two most infamous dictatorships of our modern era. You do so in ways that point us toward overlaps, yes, but in ways that also take into account the nuance and divergence, um, especially regarding how these totalitarian regimes functioned on the ground. Uh, your emphasis on the particularities and the ad hoc sort of middle out policies forces us to reconsider what exactly we mean by totalitarian and by revolution. Um, with that in mind, I just wanted to real quick ask, what are your plans for your next project?
1: Oh, yeah, that's a great question. I'm really between projects now enjoying, um, the freedom, um, to think and to explore that, um, I think when we are all graduate students, um, and then on a tenure clock, um, uh, find ourselves um, unable to to do um, when under those time pressures to produce, and so what I'm really interested in these days is does in an unexpected way come out of my research in Kaliningrad. I was really interested in the biological metaphors. I was interested in the health uh, of the body, in particular the body under distress, um, as was the case um, during the war and um, all kinds of cases of starvation and epidemic disease, um, and so. So I've taken from that two projects which are radically different um, but I'm interested in pursuing both. One is about um, the history of um, medical knowledge, um, about the body that grew from war, especially in, from, um, concentration camps, uh, sites of containment, places like the Warsaw ghetto, um, or, uh, uh places like and Kaliningrad, places where epidemic disease was rampant and hunger was rampant and often through self-experimentation, um, Uh, witnesses, scientists, medical professionals, psychologists who were trapped in these spaces, many of them Jewish, uh, Soviet, German, um, other nationalities and ethnicities, um, through a kind of self-experimentation learned about the human body and transformed that knowledge uh, during the Cold War. And so I'm interested in following transnational stories about, you know, knowledge about the human body in war. That's one project um, that I'm about to start, um, some archival research for in the spring. The second is also related to the history of the body, which is, um, uh, a history of, uh, a more of a cultural history of, um, uh, bacteria, uh, fungi, the microbiome in its role in Eastern Europe and Eurasian cultures. I'm very interested in, uh, a wonderful trifecta of mushrooms, yogurt, and pickles, and the important roles that these played in these cultures. And if you think about the Bulgarian um, longevity and lactobacillus, um, kumis, mare's milk in Central Asia, um, the the very powerful role that mushrooms um, play in medicine Mm -hmm. and in food uh, in this region. So I'm interested in in that. but then also telling that as a story about health and disease and autoimmune disease um, because of the ways that our sort of germ theory and um, antibiotics paradigm have, have shifted our knowledge and understanding of, of health in the late 20th century. So two very different projects, but growing out of, out of, out of this project in unexpected ways.
2: That looks absolutely, sounds absolutely fascinating. And we look forward to, to hearing uh, and learning about whatever um, you, you write next. So once again... Uh, German Blood, Slavic Soil, out now with Cornell University Press. Um, Highly recommend everyone go get a copy as soon as they're able. Thank you so much for being with us here today, Nicole, and we look forward to having you on once again.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciated it.